Good evening, this is Three Moves Ahead, episode 249, and I am your host, Troy Goodfellow. And tonight we continue our winter of wargaming with yet another detour through the vast, barren eastern front full of snow and dead Nazis everywhere. One of our favorite topics uh, through this winter because it's minus 20 in Toronto and I want evil people to freeze to death too. Couldn't do this without, of course, uh, our great field marshal, Dr. Bruce Garrick. Yeah, hello gamers. And the sixth Beatle of uh, Three Moves Ahead, our dear friend uh, from Mohawk Games, Soren Johnson. Hey, everyone. Good to be here. Tonight, we are looking at uh, Drive on Moscow, the follow-up from Shenandoah Studios to their really quite excellent 2012 game, uh, Battle of the Bulge. It follows, it has pretty much the same mechanics, but moves to a different setting introduces a lot of new space and a few new mechanics here and there to uh, vary things a little bit. I know that Bruce and Sword have put quite a bit of time into it, so I would like to talk about what Drive in Moscow adds, whether it builds on or is just simply a new setting for the uh, mechanics introduced in Battle of the Bulge, which I was a huge, huge fan of, and I think we all were. And also maybe look at the lessons uh, that Drive on Moscow has for designers of iPad games, of war games, and of people who have a system that they want to expand and make bigger here and there. So I want to start with you, Soren. Uh, how, how much time have you put into uh, Drive on Moscow? Uh, a decent amount of time. Um, I haven't jumped into multiplayer as much as I did with Bulge yet, um, but I played through, played through a, number of, a number of AI games. Um, and uh, it's definitely, I, I'm kind of on, on that point right now where it's really time for me to jump into multiplayer because eventually, I mean, the AI is, you know, once, once you learn the system, it's not, it's not a, you know, it's not a super robust opponent. So, um, but there's sort of a, uh, what's the right, there's sort of a gap between, you know, your abilities versus the AI versus sort of the shock of coming to face, you know, real human veteran players who actually know what they're doing. And I'm kind of like staring across, across that chasm right now. Bruce, do you want to give us a little rundown from the history of what exactly this game is about and why Shenandoah would think this is a good uh, avenue, a good setting for quite an elegant board gaming system? Sure. Uh, before we... Before I start talking, I should uh, have full disclosure, which is that I'm actually in the game's credits, so um, you can take everything I say with a grain of salt. Uh, You're in the credits. What did you do? Uh, so I was uh, I play tested a lot, and I actually wrote the um, Axis uh, strategy tips that you can find if you go to the game and go to um, Help, and then when you scroll down to the bottom, it says Tips Axis at the very bottom, and that's me. Oh, good. Well, thank you for the disclosure. Yeah. Um, so. I don't know if uh, listeners know the history of the game, but um, I think we've mentioned it several times here on the show before. But briefly, Battle of the Bulge came out as a Kickstarter that was paired with uh, the um, proposed El Alamein game, uh, which is being designed by Mark Herman, who's a well-known war game designer. Anyone who plays war games knows Mark Herman. He's a, probably one of the best designers working today, uh, with, along with John Butterfield, but um, who designed Battle of the Bulge. But... Uh, there are some design issues with El Alamein, given the the uh, uniqueness of the campaign uh, and the nature of the fighting in North Africa that 
led to development sort of going on a few detours, sidetracks, things were revised, and thus the game was not ready for release at a time when I think <clears throat> Shenandoah really, I mean, I think they basically said it, said so much uh, in their interviews, they, they needed a product. Um, so what they did is they got Ted Racer, uh, who is uh, well-known uh, in his own right for a game called Paths of Glory, which basically showed that uh, World War One could be uh, an incredibly uh, tense and compelling war game subject. Yeah. Um, so Ted has done a couple games, uh, Stalin's War and another uh, uh, World War Two Eastern Front game, uh, uh, Barbarossa. I, I should have written the title down. Um, I won't mask it from memory, but he has basically two two uh, World War II Eastern Front games to his credit as board games, and they got uh, Ted to design a game called Drive on Moscow. Now, Drive on Moscow is the is a game about the uh, Operation Typhoon, which is the um, basically late basically late October, early November uh, German uh, assault on Moscow, and uh, which ran into logistical difficulties almost from the beginning, and then uh, the weather and sort of uh, fell apart, and that was the uh, sort of the Axis last chance to uh, take Moscow, uh, probably for the rest of the war. Um, the game is uh, is um, basically the German offensive with a very little bit of Soviet counterattack at the end. Uh, so in that way, it's not quite like uh, Battle of the Bulge, where you had a decent uh, Allied counteroffensive. Uh, after basically the 22nd of December, you still played till the 28th. Here you're playing 22 turns, uh, 22 full turns, which is basically like two and a half times longer than Bulge. Um, and only four of those turns are Soviet counterattacks. So the game is a little asymmetric in that sense. Um, but, you know, everybody, war gamers love the Eastern Front, although casual war gamers probably don't. Uh, hardcore war gamers sure do. Um, it's a very popular topic. Um, it was, there was a, <laughs> there was a saying in the seventies and eighties that, um, people basically bought three things. They bought NATO, Nazis, and nukes. <laughs> um, and, uh, the Nazis part of that, unfortunately, is, uh, uh, very much tied to the Eastern Front. Um, but, uh. But it's still this, uh, you know, it's a step up from Bulge in terms of scale. Uh, but it uses very much the same mechanics, as you said. There are some, some interesting differences, but they, there are differences that would only jump out at somebody who's played Bulge a lot and, and kind of right. assimilated those rules. Because for somebody that picks it up, it just, you know, casual iPad player is just going to see the game as being the same game with different colors. Uh, but I played the game a lot. Uh, I played it in the playtest, um, you know, through various iterations, and I ended up writing the strategy for the Axis. Um, I'm not a particularly good player, according to my um, according to my rating. The game uh, rates here. Well, you're you're kind of cleaning my clock right now, but I should let you play the I should have let you play the Axis. If I knew you'd written a strategy guide, mm -hmm. I would have I would yeah. have made you play the Soviets. Well, so there's the <clears throat> the thing about the game, and this is the case with all I think simple games. That, and especially this system, you know, if you make a mistake, you lose. Uh, if the if your opponent, um, or if you make a, let's put it this way, if you make certain crucial mistakes, you lose. Right. Um, because there's really not a way to recover from that. If you leave, uh, it just for the listeners, 
uh, edification. Troy is. I'm assuming this is one of your f- the first games you've played against uh, against a human. Human yeah. and uh, Troy just left the sort of the center of the map open, trying to trying to um, uh, cover other things, which is a reasonable thing to do, unless. You've played the game a few times and realized that the Germans can then just take armor and drive it straight down the center of the map. Right. Uh, and then because of the way that the Germans move, they get these double moves just like in um, the beginning. Well, it's, it's even more powerful than in uh, Bulge because the Germans can move twice. Uh, basically, they do this um, – uh, they move and then if they uh, get a double move – then the Soviets get one move. They have um, they can just steamroller and 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 sort of leapfrog themselves. And the, and the Soviets don't have enough uh, units at the beginning to stop that. So, uh, yeah, playing it multiplayer is definitely a uh, sort of a you, you sort of you sort of learn from losing badly what not to do, and then you you play better, um, which is a great way I think to learn games. Um, How much uh, you, you're sort of? Are you referring to kind of the pre- prepare defensive phase? Yeah. So, uh, what, so how, I, go ahead. Good. I'm kind of yeah. I'm kind of curious because I mean I haven't seen enough multiplayer games yet. But how much variation do you have in those sort of opening three attacks? Uh, so it depends how you're playing the game. So do you, do you want to explain the opening offensive phase for everyone who's played it? Sure. So um, well, uh, it, it's <clears throat> it's basically the Germans get. At the beginning of the game, they get three moves, uh, and they can be any moves. It's not just an attack. They can do whatever they want, but they get three moves, and in, in those moves, if they uh, trigger an attack, the uh, the Soviets don't shoot back. It's basically like a surprise. The Soviets were not prepared. Uh, they didn't expect the Germans to uh, initiate an offensive so late in the year uh, that they had a whole bunch of command problems, so basically they end up uh, they they basically end up being steamrollered by the Germans at the beginning. Uh, so what happens is the Germans get these three attacks, uh, and um, based on how those go, the there's a very much a um, uh, that sort of sets the tone for the campaign. And uh, at the beginning, the, <clears throat> there there are multiple scenarios that the game has. Um, the campaign and the and there's a, a five turn clear weather only uh, shortened version. Called opera, uh, just that's just called Operation Typhoon, uh, and then there's a whole campaign that goes through the German uh, through the Soviet counteroffensive. And to answer your question, Soren, the variation in those opening attacks is very much dependent on which scenario you're playing, um, because it's easier to capture certain things than others. Um, but because of the way victory points are assigned. In Operation Typhoon, in the five-turn scenario, you're just looking for victory points. In the campaign scenario, you're looking for the plus one victory points because it doesn't matter whether you kept right whether you capture the the fixed three victory point city now or on the last turn. But it does very much matter if you capture the um, the one plus victory point. Uh, cities because those generate victory points every turn for the right. for the axis yeah those i've only been playing the campaign um and those those i guess you'd say one shot victory point spots they're they're really kind of odd because when you're playing the campaign you basically just ignore them 
right? Like, you know, like... Uh, when you play in the campaign, you ignore them, or when you play the, the, the Operation Typhoon, you ignore them? The, the, the campaign, because a lot of the ones that are in the South, I mean, the ax, if, if, the, if the Axis aren't able to capture those, I mean, they're doing terrible, basically. But it doesn't really make much difference if they capture them early or late. Whereas, yeah, like you said, it's all about those, you know, per turn victory points. Yes, right, right. Okay, I misunderstood you. Yes, absolutely. I agree with you completely. So, so that's the thing, right? I mean, yeah, you don't in in uh, in the campaign those fixed victory points. You don't really care uh, if those things get captured now or later. If you if you make a fight for them, that means that you think you're going to hold them to the end of the game because it makes makes no difference whether you hold them for four turns then get wiped out on the fifth turn. Right. Um, and uh, that leads you to a very different set of opening moves. Now there there are uh, some. Differences in opening moves. Uh, there's some subtle differences. Uh, you can use units to to pin uh, other units um, because the game mechanics. You can't move out of a space with enemy units into a space controlled by the enemy. So you right. can do all this very kind of uh, kind of targeted, uh, you know, pin and hold and move and flank and things like that. Um, the problem that I find with the game. And this is this is a game where you're rolling handfuls of dice. Is the outliers of the die results in this game really um, really change the way that the game plays? Because if you have really bad luck as the Germans, the Soviets have a really good shot. If you have great luck as the Germans, I'm not sure how you play the game as the Soviets. And that's the problem. And it's sort of um, there was a comment that was made to me by a by a um, an excellent player who's much better than I am who said that that kind of went against his um, sort of philosophy of game design which is that the later decisions should actually be more relevant or more important sure. than the earlier decisions yeah and this uh, game sort of turns that on its head the later de- the, the later results aren't nearly as important as what happens on, like, the first turn or the first two turns. I wonder if that issue is because the game is elongated, right? Like, I'm trying to think. There, there doesn't seem to be a core fundamental difference between this and Bulge in, you know, how the combat is mm-hmm. done, uh, the importances of taking certain tiles early on. Mm-hmm. The big difference is there's the expectation that the ge- game is going to last over twice as long. And the longer you stretch a game out like this and kind of expect it to still be balanced at the end, mm-hmm. it's just a dicier proposition. Right. I, that's probably true. I mean, I've been thinking, trying to think of reasons why the game uh, ends up being so uh, so focused on what happens early. Because I, I've, I've played plenty of games now, and, and by the way, uh, I am by no means the leader in uh, turns played. Uh, there are people that are on my list that have played, you know, ten yeah, times you, as many turns as I. Yeah, have. you guys, should, you guys should really have had Bruce Reynolds on. Yeah. Oh my god, oh Brian gosh. Reynolds. Yeah, Brian Reynolds. Oh, sorry, Brian Reynolds. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, cross so he's, through Shelley. He's apparently some phenom, right? Yeah. He, well, he says he, he told me he plays thirty games at once. Yeah. Um, which is crazy. He says, you know, some of them are, are dead, but like, yeah, he just and he says he just he just cranks out the turns. Like yeah. I agonize when I'm doing multiplayer. Well, you know, I'll take ten minutes to look at a turn, and he just he just rolls through them, and I mean, he'll destroy you. Easily. Yeah. He, he he crushed me uh, the last time we played. I mean, it wasn't really even close. I mean, he captured Moscow later in the in the in the game after the the um, frost came. But I want to say well, things oh, about the weather a- and everything, stuff like that. So keep. Sure, we, 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 we'll get to that. I want to, but we're on something I want to ask, but just general design stuff, all we have Sorn here, and this whole 
mm-hmm. early design, early turn, late turn, and the Soviets not getting much of an early break. If so much, as a game designer, if you're designing a war game, uh, do the Soviets really have a chance here against a smart human player? Or I mean, if the AIs, the AIs, except the AIs, generally weak, like very, very, very weak. Uh, as a single player game, this is not. A lot of fun, but it does give you ways to test new strategies uh, at the very least. But is this the kind of game that is just too imbalanced for one side and the other? And second, does that matter in this sort of setting and in this kind of war game? Is that something you're looking for or not? Um, well, actually, and maybe I'd be interested to hear what Bruce thinks. I think actually the pressure is really on the Axis player. Um, and that's why, generally speaking, I've been, I've been playing... Um, as an inexperienced guy, I've been playing the Russians because I feel like all the Russians have to do is kind of just, you know, make the Germans stumble somewhere along the way. And, you know, they're going to be off of their time frame. You know, if you're able to delay right. them here or there, suddenly now they're two or three turns behind where they should be at a certain point. And, you know, you just have to you just have to interrupt them somehow. You know, whereas if, if they make, you know, if they're diverted in a, in a specific way that's a problem where on the other side, if you're a fairly new player and you're playing the axis, if, if you, um, it's not like there is a certain set of right moves, but there is, right. it, it is a little paralyzing having the sense that like, okay, I've got to get here by a certain time. And I'm afraid that I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be hitting the, the right avenues at the right time. Well, well, especially in this system where you can only activate as if you're not familiar listeners to battle of the bulls, you activate one zone at a time right. and you can only move the units in that zone. And that's your turn. Yeah. Even if you have like 50 units on the board, you can only move up to three within a certain sector. Yeah. And the axis start with this whole huge force and they never get to use all of them. Sure. Because a time pressure sometimes say, well, these guys got to move again on this next turn. Yeah. Uh, so I want to have them in the right place. So these infantry or mechanized infantry down in the south might not get a chance to move. Am I wasting them? Am I not wasting them? So it's that whole decision paralysis uh, that a new player will, will face. Yeah, and that's been that's been by far my... Um, and that I think that's really another one of the huge differences between this and Bulge, in that actually, I guess if you think about it, in the, in the pure number of activations, it may not be all that different, because although there are twice as many turns... Um, you have uh, you're probably going to be making fewer activations during each turn, which means that plus you have a lot more units. So that whereas in bulge, there's often turns where you're able to use move basically most of your units or at least the important ones. There's definitely turns in in Drive on Moscow where you have to make some pretty painful decisions about not letting certain move, units move, and that can be really tough as the Germans. Right, that like I'm, I'm just you know I, I'm only going to be able to get maybe two more moves in uh, this turn, and I know there's like five or six guys I want to move. Um, that makes that, and that's been I, that's been the thing that's been most interesting to me about Moscow, um, because I thought that was a, that was a little unexplored territory of bulge. Yeah, the the interesting thing about Moscow is that um, that happens to you very much in the clear weather turns, but then the mud comes. Right. And I have some issues with the way the game is paced because I feel like, and this came up during the playtest, um, and I, I didn't feel like it was that way when I was playtesting, and probably because the game was just too new and it just seemed, you know, everything was fresh and interesting. But I feel that very soon after I started playing, 
and kind of got a few turns games under my belt, I found that the the um, the mud turns started to drag, and not in the mud, not much happens. So for listeners, there are four distinct um, uh, seasons or weather conditions in the game. It's not seasons really; it's all winter. Um, you have clear weather, then you have mud, then you have frost, and you have snow. And the Germans are basically most effective in the clear, but also pretty good in the frost. Uh, the mud basically reduces everyone to moving uh, one space except for um, Soviet armor on uh, roads as well as Soviet uh, cavalry. The problem is that if you want to have any chance of having a reasonable counterattack as the Soviets, you have to be really careful and conservative during the mud turns. If you... And, and as the axis, you can't really do anything during the mud turns, or it's very difficult uh, because everything's moving one space at a time. So you have this huge period from turn six until turn 11, where you're just kind of passing the, the game back and forth, and you're like, okay, I moved here. Okay, now he moved there. Okay, then I moved here, and then he moved there. And there's a lot of positional setup, but it kind of drags for me. And I'm not sure... I mean, I think this is one of those things where you're taking a game, you're putting it on a format, which is the iPad, where there's this premium on pacing and interactivity. And I feel like you lose a little bit of that. Um, And I think it's, I feel like the game is being a little bit uh, force-fed into this format. Um, I I almost feel like it would be, uh, it it would play better on the PC, I, maybe I'm just imagining that, or maybe the pacing is just off and it shouldn't play like that at all. Um, but uh, but there but there are two clear sort of pacings. There's the there's the clear weather. There's the mud, and then during the frost, everything ramps up again. The Germans can move two spaces. They can exploit, uh, and you get this frenzy of combat again. Um, all of which is sort of the German player playing. If you're playing the Soviets. All you're doing is hanging on there, too, until these last four turns come, and then you get basically get to try to roll through the uh, the Germans as fast as you can. Uh, it never feels like you have enough time, or the, uh, the offensive is really not—doesn't get going. Um, but I, I'm not sure—I mean, there are a whole bunch of other things about the game. I, I, first of all, I really like the game. I, lo- I love playing it. I've played, played it a lot. But um, I think that this— gives you a sort of a feel for what these long turn-based iPad games can do, which is that, I mean, I'm, I'm playing some of these things that, and, you know, I don't, I'm, I'm amazed that some people can play like up to 30 games at a time because I completely get lost in, you know, what I'm doing if I have, I mean, I think I have, I'm going to count how many games I have. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven games. Oh, man. And, I, I, I can only do a couple at a time. Yeah, some, I mean, some of them are some of them are are moving like a turn, you know, a week. Um, but you know, in in games where they're where they're moving a turn a week, I have to sort of reorient yeah. myself every time I I, I play the game, uh, and it I think it takes away a lot from the um, from the gameplay when you have to remind my remind yourself. Oh, you know, is that the one where I was going to counterattack yeah. him? No, that was the one where my my tanks are well, trapped. I think- I think what you're pointing to is the big. I mean, I I like the weather system. I really. And I hope we get. We should discuss it further later because <laughs> I think it's, I think it's really interesting what's going on there. But I, I think that the big flaw in both Bulge and, and Moscow, uh, the system in general, is that 
there there simply are too many turns for this to be like optimized for an asynchronous game mm-hmm. like i think that there's just there's just sort of a sweet spot you know where you know a game obviously obviously has to have a certain number of turns mm-hmm. and each turn needs to be fairly meaty um you know that's why kind of like the the ideal asynchronous mobile game has always been something like scrabble right which is you know you have maybe 12 turns aside and each one of those turns is super meaty like mm-hmm. you're, you're making a big tough choice for each one of them right now it's pretty hard to m- make a war game like that right um although perhaps not impossible um but this game uh but you know, uh, you know how, how many turns do you think there is in a, in a full game of moscow a hundred hundred and something perhaps hundred and fifty um, yeah uh that, that that's a lot of that's a lot of just that's just a lot of round trips Right. right, and at some level, and, and, and in many of those trips, one side might not be doing a hell of a lot. Passing, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it's at some level you just have to make a decision that, like, okay, that's the constraint that we have to deal with. You know, we can't we can't ignore that. Like, I think at a at a high level, like the game is designed very very well, but you know, it has to if if you think that it's best, you know, it's it shows itself off best as a, a multiplayer asynchronous game as opposed to like a single player versus AI game, then, you know, you have to deal with the fact that maybe the game should be de- designed a little differently. So maybe you'd be moving more, you'd be taking multiple impulses per turn, mm-hmm. you know, something like that. But something something needs to change, I feel. Yeah, the, the thing about it is that you were saying how, you know, in a Scrabble game, you know, every turn is meaty. Um, I think is do you think any of that has to do with the fact that here you're introducing a random element because if you tried to distill a war game down that still had this random element and make each turn that consequential you risk having a situation where the turn is very consequential you roll the die you get a terrible result in your host mm-hmm. and and I think that that's part of the part of the problem and I think I've mentioned this on previous podcasts but I think a part of the problem of having you know, a, a significant random element to a war game that you then place on the iPad is that it really takes the experience of the die rolling and the random number and the ownership of that luck away from you and gives it to this this faceless third party called the random number generator. And rather than taking the die and rolling, and I mean, because I've, you know, I, I don't play that many board war games anymore, but I did get a chance to play Advanced Squad Leader uh, last year, and I sat down with a guy, and he cleaned my clock. But I remember a couple times, you know, I rolled the dice, you know, when, when I first attacks, you know, my flamethrower broke. And so I had to play the whole game without the flamethrower. Um, but, you know, I took the dice, I rolled them, I got a bad number, and that was my die roll, right? And I could get mad at the dice, but I sort of felt like I owned it. I rolled the dice. Here, right. I hit the 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 attack button and then i get a terrible roll and i think well what the hell's the game trying to do to me and it sort of dissociates the experience of the game into this external thing which is the the computer and i I feel like that there's some level of enjoyment that i lose from that and that's a problem that every computer war game is going to have and so, you know, I used to be very much against the black boxing and the the kind of uh, um, intricate systems that determined results. And I'm wondering whether some really good reason for that 
is that it just makes it seem you don't see where you get screwed because I think when you see it, it frustrates you in a different way than it would frustrate you if you were if you know Soren and I were sitting across from each other and I rolled right. you know ten dice and they all came up one and Soren laughed and said ha ha boy that was a bad roll and I was like yeah I shouldn't have rolled that that was a bad strategy um, yeah this is a this is a real tricky issue I mean I think there's kind of two elements pulling on, on the opposite ends here um, you know one is first off you know I think having randomness is important for a game like this because um, you know, I mean, I think the less randomness there is, the you know, the more the skill drifts. You know, especially for the the Axis player, like a player who's just a little bit better would pretty much always crush the other side if there was very little luck involved. Mm-hmm. I feel right. Um, so I feel I like that's that's important, and that's that's sort of an aesthetic choice you make about a game, right? It's okay to say that you're going to make chess, you know, a game where yes, the 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 slightly better player should always crush the other player. You know, that's okay, but I don't. I don't necessarily see that's what I want to play. That's what I would. I, that's not what I would like to see in in a war game per right. se. But okay. at the same time, like for sure, what you're talking about is true. That when the the randomness is really front and center, like if you lose that physicality of rolling a die or spinning a wheel or or whatever, like that has a negative impact. There's reason why. Like if you play. Um, the online version of Memoir 44, like they have this, this little animation where you see the dice roll and they look just like the dice in the game. And, you know, like it's, and at the end of the game beyond that, like they'll show you a probability chart or they'll right. show you how many rolls you got of each type. So yep. even if you've, even you're like, oh, I'm getting screwed at the end of the game, you realize, well, I guess, I guess it's not really that, that bad as I thought it was. And like, right. so they're, they're really going out of their way to try to counter that, that issue. And I feel like they could probably, use some of that here mm-hmm. um because it actually took me a while I, I i had to actually dig through the real rules um to kind of figure out like oh there is actually a dice roll going on back yeah. here like it's what a, a, it's a 1d10 basically and like you have to roll two or less for a hit something it depends if your armor and then there's other modifiers right and it's, it's it's all fairly straightforward and it's straight the thing is it's straightforward enough that i really feel like they should show the dice yeah um, I, I think that that would would make a big difference if you just hit the button and wrap. I think that they're going for the guns firing and the, the you know cool animation, but I would love to see just the dice look you know roll next to the next to the units and show me what I actually rolled because sometimes I just think that can't have happened and of course it can because you know it's random numbers. But um, right. yeah, it, I get these I get these weird artifacts. Like I I swear that when you're attacking someone who's got like the two trees or whatever mm-hmm. that like. It's that's random, just like any other hit, right? It's not like those are the first automatically the first two hits, right? Uh, so that is an interesting thing that uh, I I I did notice, and I mentioned that actually. Um, I think in one of the playtests that if you are going to miss the okay. terrain, then if, if your first two shots don't take out the terrain, then you've missed completely. What does that mean? That you means miss, you'll never hit. No, so it means let's say you've got ten dice worth of tanks, okay. and you're firing at the Soviets who are hiding behind. You know, they have you know a six strength infantry hiding behind right. two tree terrain points. Right. The first tank fires and hits a tree. So that's right. the way that the for the listeners, the you roll dice, you calculate a number of hits, and then the terrain, the defenders subtract hits per terrain icon. 
So right. if you have two they terrain... Basically, on, they basically yeah. absorb right. the first two hits, yep. right? Yeah. Yep. So if the first tank fires and hits it and hits one of the trees and the hit gets absorbed, but the second shot doesn't, then none of the rest of the shots will hit. I, I basically hit close as soon as I see that. Wait, uh, are you talking that this is in the rules or are you talking this is your perception? It's not my perception. It's the, it's the fact. It's not the rules because what I think is happening is that the die rolls that are hap- as they happen, and this is my, my perception, but it seems to be borne out because it try it try fighting a combat and then going back and hitting review and seeing it again. The hits come up in a different order. What I think happens is I think that the game calculates the hits instantaneously I see. and then right. shows them sequentially in some sort of random order. But uh-huh. I think for some reason that the way the random order happens is it always does the terrain. So if you hit if you didn't get enough hits to get through the terrain, it'll show you the terrain hit first and then Right. Whatever. I guess I I mean I guess I'm thinking about it the same way just looking at it from the other point of view because what I see is basically it's like if the if the trees are going to be hit, it seems like it happens immediately as opposed to what my perception would be that like if it was just dice, right. there would be a couple rolls that are missed and then they hit the trees right. and then they hit the units right. and yeah, that's tricky. You know, that's something they really need to think hard about because the way we see this, we're, you know, we're trying, we're sort of reading the chicken, bo- chicken bones, right? Like right. we're, we're trying to peer through the the system here by how it's output. And if, if they can get as close as possible to sort of that, it's, it's, it's a, it's a bad thing if they can't, can't get as close as possible to sort of, a, you know, a st- straightforward series of, of die rolls. Right. For um, the, for the, for, for one of the reasons is that it introduces the element of doubt that the die right, rolls exactly. are actually happening correctly. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and this is all really interesting in terms of, you know, you brought that up, Soren, the presentation matters so much. And, mm-hmm. and, and it's really, I mean, it's just a bunch of rules. I mean, if you look at the rules, it's like, it's, you know, a low, medium complexity war game. Right. Um, but, uh, but we're now focused on all these things that are, and, and we're really expecting the game to teach us how to play it. Yeah. One of the things I found with Bulge, and that I've also found with, to a lesser extent, I think, because the people I'm playing against that played Moscow already played Bulge. But when I first played Bulge, people would look at the game and, and they would see things happening and they would try to infer the rules from things happening. And then right. they would say, oh, I think this is a bug. And then you'd tell them, no, look at rule X or look at this paragraph. It explains exactly why that's happening. And they'd say, oh, I didn't realize that. I've been playing this whole time. And nobody ever really looked at the rules, which yeah. I found amazing. But it just... Yeah, yeah there's a surprising number of somewhat obscure rules in both games that at some point, if you're going to play competitively, you really do need to dive in and, and reel the rules. And that's that's really no big deal for war gamers, especially since, you know, there isn't... The game is not of, of that high complexity, but I do feel like the the interface, which is in many ways is a just a great interface. Oh, it's I mean, fantastic. They've done a, done a great yeah. job of so many things, but they they kind of assume it just seems like there's a lot of things that are still missing. You know, like if there is a rule, that rule needs to be represented in the interface somehow. And or even something like I, there's so many times I wish that I could select any unit in the game at any time to see what its movement radius is. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, it seems like it, I, 
it's fairly simple. The movement rules are fairly simple, but they're not simple enough that there aren't moments when I sort of forget like, oh, can he move there? Can he cross that river? And, right. this, and will he be able to, is he on the road? Or is this, is that considered strategic movement or mm-hmm. not? You know, there's, there's a bunch of sort of just, just little details. And it would be totally solved if you could just select your enemy's units and right. see immediately like where they could move and, and why not right that just right. that just makes it easier yeah it's you're talking about how you you can always select when it's your turn you can select any of your units and see where right. they can move but the, what you really want to know is next turn where could my opponent get to right and yeah so that's it's uh, and what you what you'd really like to know is if i move here then what can my opponent do yeah, because this is very much a game, and this is this is great. I mean, it's a sign of a of a great game design where you very much, when you're deciding what you want to do, you need to be thinking very hard about well, what's the thing that my opponent wants to do? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I often make these 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 moves that I regret because I see a move that is a good move for me. I should take it, but the thing is, what I I should wait to take that move later in the turn, right? Because maybe that move is I, I'm moving into some space. That I want to take, but all of the enemy units in that area have already moved that turn. Mm-hmm. So there's no risk in that area, in that sort of section of the board at that moment, because there's nothing my opponent could do in that area. Right. So what I need to do is wait on that move and instead focus on the section of the board where the enemy's units are still still can potentially move um and that's that's super interesting and it would just it would just be so much better if if like they enabled that as well like mm-hmm. these are this is the range of the enemy units right. of these tiles you need to worry about well i make a point that you that sort of corollary to your point which it, once again does show how great the design is is that you also get in these situations where you you want to move and you play this game of chicken because you want to take a space but if you move now then your opponent has a unit that can cut you off, right? So right. you're like, well, I'm not going to move now. I'm going to wait till he moves that somewhere else. As soon as he moves that somewhere else, I'm taking that space. And so your opponent's thinking, well, I can't take, you know, I can't move where I want to go because he's going to move there. So I need to wait, you know. And and then then finally, like somebody ends up because the the way for the listeners, uh, the um, the turns don't have necessarily fixed endpoints where you know the turn will end. Uh, each each fragment of time is variable length and the turns have a so you know a turn can take six hours or 18 hours there's a fixed length of time certain number of days that each you know three days that each uh uh turn is so when you what you may not that the turn you're making may be the end of the turn right. or it may not yeah and which well, it, they, they have turns divided into phases which is yeah, a really terrible imp- way impulses. of looking at it impulses yeah so your 72 hour turn the Soviets could take a turn and that that but a fit, an impulse and that's six hours, but the next one could be like zero minutes entirely. Right. Yeah. And so that eats up the time, which completely mixes up your planning. Yeah. And the ultimate gambit is like, okay, I want to make this move, but I'm afraid of being cut off. So I'm going to try to f- see if I can sneak it into the very last phase right. of the turn before they can yeah. they can counterattack. And sometimes you think you're going to do it, and it ends up being a short phase. And oh, lo and behold, they can <laughs> they right. can go ahead and cut you off. Which is which um, is great. No, and I, I yeah. think that that's yeah. that's a that's a great um, aspect of the game. I love the way that the, I mean it builds a lot of tension. Um, but uh, but once again, you know, once it, those roles, those those turn roles, are uh, are sort of outside of your sphere of influence. They're 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 like you said that you Soren made a great um, a comment you, that you've removed the physicality of that action. And one thing that I that I 
always thought about when I was playing this game, and I've been I've been also playtesting El Alamein. Actually, that's the one that I've playtested a lot. I have a uh, um, a playtest version of my iPad right now. That's looking really good. Um, but um, one of the things that I noticed about that game from looking at the um, uh, reports that they had from the World Board Gaming uh, Championships, um, uh, Shenandoah was there and they were showing off uh, their game and they were also uh, doing a uh, like a public playtest of El Alamein and they had it displayed there. And um, Mark Herman was playing uh, Nick Carp. Um, and they just showed this big table with these large units and these huge dice. And I thought, gosh, you know, they're playing this game that's, uh, they're sort of emphasizing or overemphasizing the physicality of the game. So when you roll the dice to see whether the turn is over, you're really rolling the dice. I mean, you're like, boom, there it is. And, once again, you're taking ownership of that thing, whereas in, uh, you know, in the iPad version of Drive on Moscow, for example, just the thing that Soren was saying, when you make that move and you roll the dice to see whether the turn ends and you the turn doesn't end and your opponent gets a chance to counter move and do the thing that you had hoped wouldn't be able to be done because the turn would end and, and you'd get to move again, uh, those are two completely different feelings. And so many times in Drive on Moscow, I feel like, oh, God, you know, the game screwed me. Whereas if I were playing it face-to-face with somebody, like Troy would uh, be sitting across from me and I would roll the dice and and Troy would go, ha-ha, you know, you're, you're, uh, I I get another, you know, six hours, boom, right there, see a checkmate. Um, And it's a different feeling. So anyway, but I'm repeating myself. Well, you know, that's I, this is this is a this is a topic I, I think about a lot because um, when I think of like what makes something, I guess you'd say, board gamey, you know, which is sort of something we say a lot about various various video games. Um, I think like the real core thing that gives a board game its flavor is its transparency. You know that you you see all the rules play out in front of you, and you're 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 doing the system, you know. Out in, out in the open so everyone sees so when you get to that point of okay i'm going to take the risk of doing this move hoping that you know the other side will not get an impulse you know what exactly you know what exactly that risk is you know you're rolling right say a, a 10 sided die and you know you need to roll you know six or lower to succeed so you know immediately that yes you're taking a risk but you know exactly how risky that risk is um in the iPad version here, I guess if I dug into the rules, I probably could figure that out. But I, I think even then it would be tough because the the delineations are kind of fuzzy in that that bar, and they're kind of expecting you to play it by feel, right? And um, you know, I think when you're when you're playing a game like this, I think you you still really want that transparency because it's it's not it's not a simulation, right? It's right. not that type of it's game, definitely right? Not. Right, right. And you know, it's so. It's tough. I mean, you you want that, and then as designers, you know, they're always going to be afraid. Like, well, then we're we're going to be overloading the players with numbers, right? right? It, it's more like there just needs to be a way to look through that window when you when you need it, yeah. um, or, or just it's just something that needs to be considered throughout the design. Yeah, it's so hard to do, though. I mean, I just can't. I mean, I'm not a game designer, and I just can't imagine how difficult it is to to look at the game, to look at your game, to see how. Because when I played this game, 
you know, I was I play tested it and I played it over and over and I was like, this is great, this is fantastic. And then only after I played a whole bunch of times, like, well, you know, I'd really wish I had this or I really wish I had right. that. And and I mean, I, I can imagine that as a game designer, it's 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 so difficult and 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 yeah. frustrating well, the fear, to, yeah the fear is they would overload you if they overload you early you never would have gotten over the hump to where you care about that stuff right um so i often feel like it, strategy games are well suited to have essentially multiple levels of interface mm-hmm. um so that you can kind of like turn on extra turn on extra overlays turn on extra information um once you've kind of hit that point of like okay i'm comfortable with a game and now i just I, I want it all, you know, turn on the right. fire hose, you right. know, like I want to understand what's going on here. So, Soren, you want to say something about the weather system in some detail? Uh, yeah, I mean, I just, I really like, um, I, I really like the fact that the game has this, these four distinct phases with four, four different, uh, with a very different feel um, and how that, that changes, um, you know the, the 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 sense of the different sides you know that like okay as the axis like you know you need to not only you know like okay it's the clear weather days i i know i need to push but like you're also like i need to get my push in before stuff you know before the before the mud comes and then like oh now it's the uh uh, the, you know the frost phase so i can kind of like i can i can you know breathe again you know i can i can do something and like i just i i, I find that kind of unique I, I can't think of a lot of other games that have done something like that um at least so so explicitly um the one thing that i um and i actually got the 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 pleasure to meet uh, uh eric lee smith uh he came down to the designer he came down to um baltimore mm. um a couple weeks ago mm-hmm. um i had dinner with him and one of, the, one of the first things i told him about the game is you know i really love the weather system but i i wish it was random you know, like that's mm-hmm. just uh, mm-hmm. that's very natural for me coming from a like, you know, you know, designing a game like Civ. It's all about, you know, random maps, random events, random stuff going on and just kind of seeing what comes. Um, and, you know, they're like, well, that sounds, you know, that that would be pretty interesting. But like they're coming from this other perspective of like they're constantly fighting this battle of trying to make sure that the victory points are going to line up after 20 turns. Right. Right. And right. That's, that's just almost impossible to do if you're, you know, if the weather phases have such of a, a, a big impact on the game. Yeah. Um, I still think it would be interesting as an option or even, um, and if you did that, it would be, it would be cool to like have some sort of, um, meteorology system built into the game mm-hmm. where you have like yeah. um you know forward looking like we we think that we think the rain is coming in in x number of turns and but there it has this percentage chance of happening and i don't know it's just it's just it was one of those game design elements that got my brain got my, my wheels turning yeah well the thing the interesting thing that i can say about that is that the random weather in the russian in 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 the on the eastern front uh is a is a well uh, is a much discussed problem, and uh, sure. there was a game in the seventies, very popular. That I mean, it's still popular. It's still played uh, regularly by people who do such things. Um, called the Russian Campaign, and uh, the classic question about the Russian Campaign was: Do you play with historical weather? Because the sure. game was actually historical weather was a was a, was an option. Yeah. Uh, it was the, the game actually played as. A um, as a uh, a random weather game, and the problem right. that happened was that you had a basically a one in six chance as each side of losing the game. Right uh, on that 
on that turn, right? So the the, the first turn where you ruled the, the the weather. If you got a, if you were the Germans, you got clear weather in the whatever it was September October. I think it was mm-hmm. you you won the game. I mean, there, yeah. unless you were playing really really badly, had a whole bunch of other bad luck. I mean, if you you got an extra turn, and if you rolled mud during that turn, then you were hosed. So it, it's 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 impossible to balance that game. Just like you said, I mean, yeah. you can't you can't balance two really disparate weather effects uh, against each other and still have the game, you know, play out at the end to have any kind of reasonable... I mean, you you basically have to say, uh, you know, well, if the Axis rolls a, you know, a six, then they have to get, you know, another 25 victory points, Um, which, I mean, I guess you could do, but that would just start seeming really strange. Yeah, it's it's such an impossible problem, right? Because, you know, having the weather be spelled out so far in advance is go so goes so much against the grain of you know this concept of like well we're we're, pu- we're putting in the we're we're in the um shoes of the general right? right and we're trying to adapt the situation you know as a and you know they obviously did not know what was coming but on the other hand like yeah there's it's the whole fact that the everything hinges around the historical weather pattern to balance the the game otherwise you're 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 then not pit playing you're not playing a historical war game again. Right. So, I mean, just like that's, that seems pretty unsolvable to me. I have no idea what to do there. Yeah, I, 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 I'm, uh, I, I'm just, I'm just impressed that they got done what they got done. I mean, it's, I think it's a great game. I think that the, the sort of getting to this level of analysis of the game, I mean, it has to be pretty good if you can get to this point because so many games would fail, you know, on, you know the previous five levels that we've gone into this so yeah do you want to talk a little bit about uh why the ai why they the ai is just not able to keep up is this a problem just the war games or i mean the, the battle of the bold ai wasn't any great shakes but it was also a much smaller map it yeah. just seems to be completely incompetent on a larger the map's gotten bigger but the ai has not been able to deal with that i mean a lot of the changes i think um like most of the changes make the game harder for the ai you know, bigger maps. The game lasts longer, more turns. You you're you have to make tough choices about which units not to move. Um, you have these very different movement systems depending upon the weather conditions, and so you have to have this high level understanding of the different phases. Um, there are some very tough bottlenecks. If I look at the map, I can tell you immediately what's the problem. Like what's what's the big problem for the AI? It's that southeast corner. Like the AI yeah. doesn't seem like they have any idea how to get out of that corner, and um, I mean, to me, like, if you're serious about the AI, to some extent, you need to design your game for the AI. And I, I would question the way they actually arrange the map in the southeast corner. Like, if uh, I, they need to open that up a little bit, if they were serious about giving the AI a chance, because it just, I, I just, I just played, I was just playing a uh, game as the AI, you know, this tonight, just to sort of get ready for the podcast. And I just left my original unit down there in the southeast corner, and the AI has not even made a single move down there. Mm-hmm. It still has its original nine units there just sitting on those tiles the whole time. Oh, I see. Um, and it is kind of a tricky problem. That's the southwest Getting corner, right? South, southeast corner. Uh, there's that, that river down there. Uh, what are that, the southeast corner is uh, Baturin. I don't know how to pronounce it. but Yeah, it's just, um, that's, the, that's the southwest, right? Is east, the map west, upside down. Sorry, is is north not the top of the screen? No, east is the top of the screen. 
okay well bottom right corner guys <laughs> excuse me i'm a, I'm a flunk russian geography but uh but yeah the bottom right corner yeah is is it's tricky to get out of for for any any player but the ai really has a big problem with that i mean i if you could design the game for the ai it would be it would be um it would take away one of the great things about the game which is the ability to play it um i mean i, th- I feel like the game like this you have to basically make it for the for two players or make it for an ai i know for a fact that one of the problems that they have with the game is that you're trying to force what's really you know from a from a from a selection of moves standpoint a very complex game and and force the the um the ipad to do all those calculations and i think that they're i think that the processor um Capacity. Yeah, I I don't think the issue is the processor. No, no, I think that um, the because that that implies that you could you could break this game down like a chess problem, mm-hmm. right? And I think the 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 space involved blows up so quickly that you just can't look at this game that way. Um, you know, I, I I don't know how they wrote the AI, but I mean, I sure I I assume it's kind of like a some opening some set opening moves with a bunch of heuristics to kind of kind of figure out what to do uh-huh. and then eventually eventually that just kind of that just kind of breaks down i mean it's it's so hard to get an ai to understand not not just like you know the basics of how to move around and not make a dumb move but how to know which part of the map is important and at, at which moment and which part isn't um that's just that's just a, a crushing yeah. problem. Like well, I don't... especially especially with the variation with the varying victory points, with some of them being fixed victory points and some of them not. That three might look really big once, right? But it's those, it's all those extra ones which are often left aside as the AI makes a quick grab. Right. I mean, as as we often say, like the big key to playing this game is having a sense of like what you think your opponent is going to do next, yeah. right? And you know, if the AI. Yeah, you know, I, I feel like the AI had that's that's a real big leap for an AI to to accomplish in, in a strategy game. Um, generally speaking, in, in a game like Civ, like you're just kind of like trying to make sure it doesn't do anything just kind of ridiculously stupid, and you know, um, tr- you know, trusting with the fact that like, well, most of the game you're not able to see everything the AI is doing anyway, and that there are, and also, frankly, that there are acceptable ways to have the AI cheat without bothering the player too much in, in Civ. And that's true in RTS games. That's true in a lot of games. And that there's just no way to do that here. I mean, would you be interested in playing the AI if the dice were weighted in their favor? I mean, is that would that be better at all? I mean, it doesn't But also doesn't the standard problem like with war games and AI is, you know, according to grand strategy games, in a grand strategy game, what the AI should be doing is not going to radically change from a planning perspective from one turn to the next or one impulse to the next. If an AI had a plan in a war game, either they stick with it, but my turn could completely make that entire plan irrelevant. The AI can't recognize that. Right. Yeah, it's it's a big it's a big problem. Either you're doing like super, like I'm just going to react to each each situation as it comes, which means you know the AI tends to be pretty myopic and can't really do something overarching. Right. Or it's like I'm going to follow this plan no matter what, and then eventually you just you snip off one of their, you know, you snip off some supply route and the whole thing falls apart. Um, it's just, it's a huge, huge programming challenge. I can't overestimate that enough. Like this is, this is a really tough problem. Do you you think it's possible to solve? I mean, that's it. That 
what you're saying, I mean, I've never programmed AI. You obviously have, so I'm very interested in your 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 opinion on this. I mean, are you saying that it's really not possible to design AI that can play this game competently no matter how much time you spend doing it? Well, it's it's possible. Usually, I would say it's a it's a human resource problem. Um, in that, you know, it's it's very tempting to think of AI in terms of algorithms. You know, like it just just needs more computational power and have a bigger uh, binary search tree. And you know, sometimes people talk about you know very va- concepts they vaguely understand, like fuzzy logic or genetic algorithms or whatever. And that's that's not really what ends up happening in most AI. Most AI is um, like the actual code involved is fairly pedestrian, but it what its success is a reflection of the programmer slash designer's understanding of the game itself, right? Um, like, In what way? Can you elaborate on that? Well, yeah. I mean, to some extent, the AI program the better the AI programmer is at the game, the better they're going to be at making AI. Mm. Right. I mean, that's, that's fairly straightforward, but here's, here's the big challenge until you release a game, you're kind of playing in the kiddie pool, right? Like, um, you know, I mean, it's, well, I mean, it's, it's good that they brought guys like you on board to test out the game early. That certainly helped, but you know, until a game goes wide, you know, you're, you only have, kind of a limited understanding of all the various strategies involved right. oh, in your own game. Sure. So really the time, like if you're serious about making good AI for a game, you know, you have, you, you almost have to internalize that development starts for the AI when the game ships. Like that's, that's really the, mm. the that's really the way to do it. And, but that's just not as a business proposition. That's, that's just not really feasible. Yeah. There, um, there's gotta be some, I mean, by the time you, you get reasonable, I mean, if you get reasonable AI, AI for the game, you know, a month later, you're, right. you've kind of missed 99% of your market, right? Yeah. I mean, to do it ahead of time, I mean, it just, I mean, there'd be, I'm sure there are some really remarkable individuals who could perhaps pull it off. It's just that, that it's, it's really, really hard to do. Um, I, I think like if you're, so if you're trying to find a um like a a general approach that would not rely on a certain amount of you know luck and providence um i would say the best way to do it is find a way to open your ai up to modding yeah um like ultimately the people who are going to understand the game the best are you know you're going to be your hardcore players mm-hmm. um and it's not coincidentally a lot of them will, will end up to be programmers um and not necessarily a lot of them, but some mm-hmm. of them. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they don't necessarily have to write an AI from scratch, but they can probably figure out a number of ways to improve the AI that you have built. Um, and, uh, you know, I hope that doesn't come across of at like, you know, like we're trying to push off our problems to our audience. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just that, you know, these are, these are big issues and I'm, you know, I'm not, a, I, I, I will probably never be a high level player, for the games that I make. And it's just, it, that's, it's just another one of those sort of intractable, intractable problems, hmm. right? Like, like the, the AI, um, needs to grow with the community. And, you know, like the, the, 
a lot of the people who come in as a lot of people who are game developers, game designers, game programmers, you know, the, the, the effort they want to put into the game comes before they ship it. Right. It's exciting to build something, but it's not as exciting to kind of like get that, you know, um, spend hours and hours and hours after release on a, after release on a very small percent of the code to improve it past the level that you know, for, because for a lot of people, they, they will come to this game and the AI will be sufficient for them. Right. Right. Um, that's certainly something we found in Civ, you know, however much, you know, beating sort of the AI got for a lot of people, the AI, AI was perfectly sufficient. Um, and so there's just not necessarily, um, a business model that supports that. And it's not something that a lot of the developers want to think about, you know, when they release a game, they're, they're exciting to move on to the next project. Right. So it's, it's a hard thing to do to find the right person who's ready to really buckle down after a game's release and figure out how to get the AI to, um, to be really competitive at a game like this. I think that's the best answer I can get really. But you don't think there's anything to do with computing power? Well, I mean, you know, <laughs> there there's obviously a limit to that. But I don't I don't think if you, you know, if you just sort of you know gave this gave the iPad a, a processor that was you know ten times faster and ten times the memory and, and whatnot, mm-hmm. that you would see a real noticeable difference in in AI performance. Okay. Not, not at this point anymore. Okay. So before we wrap up, um, any final thoughts or contributions, uh, perspectives on where this takes us to Alamein or to Gettysburg, the next games they're working on? Well, I mean, I think that, you know, Alamein and Gettysburg are two completely different games. I mean, Alamein is this is the same system um, designed by Mark Herman, uh, who is an incredibly talented designer. Yep. Um, and I'm, I'm fascinated to see how that is evolving. Um, I don't really want to talk about it, but um, I think that people should enjoy it, um, assuming that it develops along. The, I mean, they've done they've they've tweaked it so much. I mean, they, it, as as they said, the development was had run into some problems, not from a technical standpoint, simply from a you know a real historical simulation game design standpoint of how you really wanted to portray the Battle of El Alamein, which was so unique in so many ways, and they had some problems about figuring out how to do that. I think they've basically solve those problems um and you know if if if, uh you know we're experiencing this is a thing that i've i've found interesting about the way we consume our games that um you know there are so many board games that are released where you have a, a system like this is the you know crisis and command system um, just imagine a board game with a Crisis and Command system, and then you had a Battle of Bulge game and a Drive on Moscow game and an El Alamein game, and you had situation-specific rules for each, new maps, new counters, new everything. In the board games, people would be dying to grab the next game in the system, right? Like the Command and Colors. Oh, just give me Command and Colors with some, you know, some Napoleonic units or some other kind of units, or give me the Spartan Army or whatever. Right. People love that stuff. When you put it on the computer... People start thinking, oh, wait, is this? I played this game. It just had different, you know, <laughs> it had different names on it. It had different colors. I, I've already played this game. What's a, why? Do you have any insight into what that, cause, because that's how I feel like when El Alamein comes out, people are going to say, okay, look, we've already had Bulge. We've already had Drive on Moscow. Now we have El Alamein. It, you're, you're moving those little squares with the little pips with the dice and the, the maps are different, but you're doing the same kind of stuff. 
Right. Whereas, well, it could it could be that the uh, the mechanics or the system themselves, I think, is is more the star in a video game than the actual content. Mm. Yeah, the, I mean, the, the content, like, when you buy the box, when you buy, you know, the Spartan army for Command and Colors, I mean, you're getting a bunch of blocks and stickers, and you get to put the stuff on there, and then now... Right. And the- it takes forever! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, I know Troy's had that experience. Um, so, the, so the point is that, I mean, you're getting, you've got this thing, you've got you've got a box full of paper and cardboard and wood and plastic and and here it is and you can yank it out of the closet and and shake it and and i you know i paid money for this and and i you know i'm looking at drive on moscow i'm looking at this map it's incredible what they did with this game the way that the the clear weather looks the way that the mud looks the way that the Mm -hmm. frost the snow the the aesthetic is so beautifully done i mean they they have amazing map artists i mean they have amazing graphic design the whole the, the 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 interface that they designed i mean i don't think people i mean i know people give it credit but i they need to give it more credit the, what yeah. they did with bulge and how they completely reimagined how you do war games on the you know yeah. fitting it to this 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 ios i mean it's amazing what they did and then what you know we're we're, we're two games in and people are, are like okay yeah, yeah i played this thing all right so what what, yeah. what are we doing to do next it's yeah, just, and tech it's, and Technically, the multiplayer works fantastic, mm-hmm. which is not something you say about every game yeah. out there. Um, right. And uh, yeah, I, I very much feel—I feel like I said this before on Three Moves Ahead at some point—but I really feel like the the Bulge Moscow games are kind of better than we deserve, mm-hmm. you know, for for this type of format because there's no one out, else out there making games, nobody ma- games like this quality. Not even close. It's not. It's not even close. And 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 so that's the thing, you know. I wonder why. I mean, I, I really hope that El Alamein does well. I'm sure it's going to it, it's going to be to the standard that these games are. Um, right. You know, the presentation they've got all that stuff down. Um, we'll see how the AI goes. Um, uh, but uh, the, you know, the situation is compelling. But it's just something about the system. I and mean, I've already seen people say, "Well, you know, I've already played. I'm, I'm looking forward yeah. to to different things." That's fine. I mean, they'll get Gettysburg. Gettysburg, from what I've been reading, they've been if people uh, want to go to Shenandoah Studios website. Look at their. I'm not involved in the Gettysburg development in, in any way, by the way. So that's just that's um, uh, just saying. I've read some of the blog posts they've had. Um, it's amazing what they're doing with the maps for that. The way that they're doing the interface. They, I mean, I'm sure it's going to be another you know revelation in, in game interfaces. Um, but I would just hate to see the games, all the work that's been done on Bulge and Moscow, sort of get subsumed by this video game uh, sort of expectation that everything is going to be this new different thing because yeah. oh it's just right. it's just video game graphics so yeah so they just drew a map so what i can draw a map right i mean you can't i can't draw a map at all but i mean i'm sure that there are people out there that are like oh look whatever they it, maps are something you know give me something completely different every time which i know how realistic that is and i don't really want something different every time but yeah. um i just feel like there's going to be a very different reception for the third game in a series on the ipad than there would yeah. be for the third game in a series in board games where people would sort of look at the way that the system changed for the situation and yeah. really appreciate that. And I don't think that that gets done in, in video games at all. Yeah. I think it could be the less people are coming to the game with the same sort of historical background that they do in the war gaming field. So there's and less appreciation. A, a much smaller audience for the going to be right. spending like 80 bucks on a board game. Mm-hmm. Right. You're going to actually really want that board game. Right. And so I think for people who really, you know, sort of understand the Eastern Front, you know, they can see how much effort 
was put into this game, you know, as opposed to if someone is, you know, if, if, if Drive on Moscow is just sort of seen as another, another strategy game on the iPad, yeah, I mean, perhaps it's, it's not different enough for, for some people um, from, from Bulge, but, mm-hmm. you know, that's, that would be too bad. Uh, I mean, yeah, I'm really look. I mean, I'm for sure really looking forward to Gettysburg. Um, I'm really interested in that. I just say as as an aside, um, it was really neat for me to meet uh, Eric Lee Smith because back when I was, I don't know, must have been eight or nine, mm-hmm. I somehow stumbled across a copy of his Civil War game, mm. um, the old across Victor Games five one. Uh, no, was no, it? I, this was just the Civil War. It was oh, the entire the Civil War. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, the entire four years, you know, goes from yeah, you know, the entire, now. you know, south southeastern U.S. even goes out to Texas. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, I at that time I had never seen war games. Period. I mean, I, I had no idea that they even existed. And you know, to see that box, it looked like it was like shipped here from another planet. Basically, I had, I had like no context for where this came from. But immediately when I turned it over, looked at the back of it and saw this gigantic hex map, all these counters with, you know, names of generals on them with ratings. You know, it's like I it's like I immediately, you know, I I didn't know that I <laughs> I love this thing, but it just immediately sprung out to me as right. This is something important, um, and so I got it. And that was like the very first war game I ever had. Hmm. It's, um, which is also kind of interesting because that game has some really unusual initiative rules, um, mm-hmm. which I just assumed were were normal. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I found out later that that you know most war games are much more traditional about that. Right. Um, and we see that he's he's still doing interesting things with initiative. Um, but it's really cool to see someone like that. Um, have essentially a second life as a designer because that was a long time ago right i right. mean certainly you know not all not very many designers from back then have made the transition to you know something as you know forward looking as you know this you know uh, ipad native uh wargaming right well i mean i think i think it's something that uh, i don't know I've, I've not talked to eric about it but i've read the stuff that he posted for the um initial kickstarter for bulge which basically said Mm -hmm. you know he had designed games and then he went off and did other things and then as soon as he saw the ipad he kind of called his old you know he he got the band back together and said hey uh look at this thing this is how we've got you know this is how we make this is the thing we make war games for now we're making it for this ipad thing it's going to be great and uh you know like all great designers i mean he had a vision and decided that was what they were going to uh, they we're going to do, and I, I I'm amazing amazed by what they've done so far. Um, yeah. I, I hope that it doesn't get um, lost in in a market that's that doesn't appreciate it. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just nice, it's inspiring to kind of think of like essentially all this uh, you know latent design talent that was just sitting there mm-hmm. unused, and you know has has been you know has been able to take advantage of this. Um, and so yeah, obviously, I hope we see a whole lot more. Yeah. And this is why we are big fans of the iPad and of Shenandoah Studios. Uh, so thank you, Bruce and Soren, for this very fascinating discussion on uh, Drive on Moscow, which is available, of course, in the iTunes store. Yep. We highly recommend you check it out, uh, especially since Bruce did the tips. If you like this manual for Dominions 4, it's these, are just, it's these are just shorter. as good, only much, yeah, much shorter and a lot fewer jokes. Uh, next week, we will continue our Winter of War gaming with something or other. Uh, we hope you're enjoying it. And if you have any suggestions, you can please reach out to me or to Rob. Our emails are probably 
hidden somewhere public. I know mine is. And uh, please can join our forum, and you can sign up there to talk about our shows. I'd like to thank Michael Hermes uh, for his brilliant work every week. And Thanks, Michael. Sound Sounds great. Not so terrible. And thank you, Soren, for coming on again uh, um, at this very late hour. My pleasure. I was happy to be here. Have a good night, everyone. Good night. Good night.